0: Welcome to the DTB podcast for April 2018, Volume 56, Number 4. My name is David Fisackley. I'm DTB's Deputy Editor.
1: And I'm James Cave, Editor-in-Chief.
0: The editorial in the April issue discusses the STOMP campaign and highlights some of our concerns with it. Should we start with an explanation of what STOMP stands for?
1: So, yes, I was rather surprised to discover that uh, Stomp was a campaign that was set up in 2016 after the Winterbourne Hospital Review. You remember, these were patients with learning disabilities. Uh, many of whom were taking psychotropic medication without any justification. And the stopping over medication of people with learning disabilities, which is what STOMP stands for, campaign has pointed out that between 30 and 35,000 people uh, with learning disabilities are taking these psychotropic medications without really any justification in their records to explain
0: why this might be. So what does the campaign involve?
1: So the, the plan really is to provide a resources for GPs and to try and get commissioners engaged in finding ways of making sure that patients in these situations have a specialist review with medical and social care input and then have a specialist plan put in place with an idea that then that will actually improve their quality of life and reduce the amount of prescriptions going on.
0: So the thrust of the campaign is to tackle overuse of psychoactive medication in in this population. Is it always about stopping it?
1: Well, this is one of the points that um, is made that in obviously a number of patients, but usually a a minority, they will be well balanced. It will be the right thing for them to be on, on the medication. So it's not about always stopping it, but it's about reviewing and really being clear why a patient is taking it and being clear that the benefit outweighs the risks.
0: And perhaps the surprise that you expressed that this had been running from 2016 suggests that it's not as high profile as it should be.
1: Yes, I think what I would say to our listeners is that if you get opportunity, go online and and look at the resources available. There's some very good resources for for GP practice to look at and consider doing some audit work with patients. And and it is a shame. It's like a lot of things, isn't it? You can sort of perhaps organize a campaign like this. But unless you really support it with with resources, it can just sit quietly on a website somewhere going nowhere.
0: And so, what it actually needs is perhaps some dedicated resource and a bit more impetus
1: without a doubt i mean you know it's the difficulty i think with this situation is we are where we are because there has been a lack of resources in the care for people often with very challenging behaviors and uh, to simply suggest that you can stop medication without significant input both in medical time to ensure it's done safely and also in care time because these patients may well require a change in their approach a much more personalized service to enable that to happen
0: so a laudable campaign, but there is a risk that it isn't going to go much further without some very careful and planned resource input. Correct. I think that's exactly it. Okay, thank you very much. Our first article this month reviews a once-daily triple therapy inhaler for COPD. By my reckoning, this is the second triple therapy inhaler launched in the UK for COPD. Uh, the first one was beclomethasone formoterol and glycopronium, and given twice daily. So what's in this one?
1: So this is Trelegy which has fluticasone furoate in it and vilanterol which uh, is a long-acting beta agonist and in addition it has umiclidinium, which is the long-acting muscarinic antagonist. And this device it's delivered in the ellipta device which is already available as a dual therapy fluticasone furoate and vilanterol.
0: And it's let's get the licensed indication out of the way. What is it for? So this is licensed
1: for COPD, to severe COPD only. This is not licensed
0: for asthma. And although the SPC says it's for people who are not adequately controlled by a combination of an inhaled steroid, and a long-acting beta-agonist, does it actually define what it means by adequately controlled?
1: No, it, it doesn't. I mean, it is a slightly unusual indication. And I think we're going to see a lot of triple therapy treatments coming on to the market. There's There's been a sort of a shuffling of the decks rather when it comes to the management of COPD. And I think we're going to see m- multiple combinations coming out in the next few years. So evidence of
0: effectiveness...
1: Yeah, so the evidence we have for Trilogy comes from, I suppose, three main studies. We have two 12-week studies where they compared triple with double therapy. So this was actually comparing valentrol and fluticasone alone with a placebo inhaler or valentrol and fluticasone furate with an umiclidinium inhaler. Um, i say only 12 weeks long, about 1,200 patients with moderately severe COPD, average age around 60, as you might imagine. And the primary outcome was actually a trough forced expiratory volume on day 85 so it was a it was a measured outcome if you like rather than any perhaps clinical or qualitative result or well, they did look at the St. George's respiratory questionnaire as a secondary outcome.
0: So the improvement in
1: feV1 was, A whole 120 mils, 1.12 litres. So, and that's, you know, that is a statistical significant uh, improvement. And the St. George's respiratory questionnaire was a bit inconsistent. So, one of the studies demonstrated there was a significant improvement in patients' quality of life, and, and one didn't.
0: So, not a great surprise that if you add another bronchodilator, you'll increase lung function.
1: Exactly. It's one of those situations where, goodness me, three drugs works out better than two.
0: Okay. And then the other study,
1: so in the in the other study, which was a 24-week study, so a longer study, they compared the triple therapy trilogy against um, budesonide and formoterol. So that's the Symbicort turbohaler that most people m- would recognize. Slightly bigger study, 1,800 patients. Once again, they looked at trough fev one and also looked at sort of qualitative outcomes such as St. George's Questionnaire.
0: And... Don't tell me the FEV1
1: increased. Indeed, trough FEV1 was improved by 0.172 liters and the St George's questionnaires uh, their quality improved in both, so both groups had a improvement, uh, significant clinically significant improvement in their St George's questionnaire outcomes and uh, the trilogy group had a higher statistically higher improvement than the dual therapy.
0: And also, this group, they looked at exacerbation rates at 24 weeks, so moderate to severe, so anyone who required either antibiotics or oral systemic corticosteroids or were admitted to hospital. And what did they find?
1: Yes, yeah, so the incidence of exacerbations in the Simbicort group was 14%, and in the Trilogy group was, was 10%. Um, that's a relative risk reduction of of 30%. But um, we're talking about, if you look at it, sort of numbers needed to treat to prevent one exacerbation, it was about about eight in a year.
0: But if you actually looked at the data for hospitalisation, then the figures only seem to be a difference of 1% and 2%.
1: Yes, you picked this out, which is really interesting, actually. So you'd think that moderately to severe exacerbations, we were talking about a significant number of those people having hospitalizations, but actually the data show that one, only about 1% of patients uh, were in that group. So we're talking about you know, perhaps having to treat 80 in a year to prevent a hospital admission.
0: OK. Harms, I guess, well, we pretty much know what the likely harms are from these drugs because they've been in use for, for such a long time. What about placent therapy? Because what this doesn't tell us is anything about comparing it with labor and a lama combination but we are expecting evidence from trials at some point
1: i think these treatments are possibly going to be very useful in many people the difficulty with them is ensuring they are positioned correctly i think there's a real risk that people will very quickly be shifted on to a triple therapy because it's simple and straightforward and uh, of course there may well be issues around pneumonia risk associated with doing that. And what we really need to do is make sure that that triple therapy really is beneficial. It's it's remarkable that both Gold and NICE suggested this, this sort of triple therapy was an option when the evidence behind it is weak. So I think, you know, in patients where it's clear that triple therapy is right for that patient, then these, you know, triple inhalers are obviously going to be very useful for patients just, you know, as long as they use it correctly, it's one inhaler much easier for them when it comes to compliance. But that clinical slippage where people just end up all being on triple therapy because it's simpler is a real risk and and not without its adverse effects.
0: And our second article this month looks at use of high dose antihistamines for chronic urticaria. Why have we chosen this one?
1: Yes, well, I I think a lot of GPs will have experience of sending a patient off to an allergy clinic who you know, with with chronic urticaria, and a rather straightforward letter will come back from the specialist saying, oh, I've you know, start them on antihistamine, and if it doesn't work, double the dose, doesn't work, double it again, you know, and, you know, perhaps give as much as four times the dose. And I think a lot of us GPs, particularly those of us that long in the tooth and remember drugs such as tefenidine and the adverse effects of them, are sort of just a little bit anxious about this. So we thought it'd be really useful to go away, look at the evidence behind the management of uh, chronic urticaria in this way and also sort of have a look at the guidance that's being produced both nationally and internationally.
0: So standard treatment is with second generation antihistamines at licensed doses?
1: Yeah, so I mean most of the uh, guidance, just first of all of course obviously check the drugs patients are on, non-steroidals and ACE inhibitors are the classic ones that can trigger it. So Uh, One of the learning points for me was that if you've got a patient on a non-steroidal, have a trial for at least three to four weeks off the drugs before you decide it's not them that's the cause of it, because it can take a while for these patients with urticaria to settle down. Next level up, though, is just standard doses of second-generation antihistamines, so classically, satirazine, liratidine, that group. And about 36% of patients on standard doses with chronic urticaria will respond to them. But of course, it's the other 60, 70% that have always been difficult.
0: And for those, then we've dug a little deeper into the evidence for using higher doses. Was there much?
1: So this is where things get thinner and thinner. So we found one small um, systematic review that suggested that actually increasing the dose of these antihistamines did increase the likelihood of control over symptoms in about 60% of patients. And then there were a number of studies, all with sort of perhaps 30, up to about a maximum of 80 patients in each study that looked at cetirizine and loratadine and um, fexofenadine, all those sort of classic second-line treatments and you know some of them were randomized controlled trials some of them were just case reviews but they did seem to consistently show that if you increase the dose up to four times the standard dose so that's outside the license there was an increase of effectiveness so and and usually not much in the way of adverse effects but for some sleepiness
0: at higher doses so this has also been carried forward into several national and international guidelines who've also picked up on that this is a a thing to try what's the guidance that the gmc give us on prescribing off-label or off-license
1: yeah this is where i I think it's always worthwhile just reminding ourselves it's it's classic it's paragraph 69 i remember it well because it's something i've gone back to lots and lots of times but gmc guidance says that if a drug is available that is licensed you should always try and use that first. But if one isn't available, then one can consider using an unlicensed drug. And unfortunately, the GMC doesn't use the term off-label, which I think is a is a mistake because it doesn't allow clinicians to understand, are we talking about a product that has no license at all or are we talking about a product that has a license and we're using it in a way that it's not licensed if that makes sense because of course there are issues around quality and uh, such like which you get with a licensed drug even if you're using it off-label or outside its license.
0: So in this case we're using a license preparation for its indication that it's normally used for we're just increasing the dose so you've got two out of the three tips really <laughs> if
1: you like i mean whether that makes it better than none um but you're right but the thing about it is that you just because it's off label you need to be discussing that with the patients explaining to them that this is outside the manufacturer's recommended treatments I mean, you can point out that, you know, you've got the uh, British Association of Dermatologists, you've got the European Academy of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, you've got the Global Allergy and Asthma European Network, you've got the World Allergy Organizations, all of these organizations suggesting in their guidelines for the management of chronic urinary care that that it's okay to go up to four times the standard dose on these treatments. But you just still need to be clear with patients that this is an off-label situation.
0: And then review them regularly to make sure they're not carrying on at that dose when maybe it's not needed.
1: Absolutely. And remember that 90% of patients have remission around five years. So you shouldn't have patients who've just got big doses of antihistamines on their repeats 10 years down the line. The chances are they don't need it.
0: And just from a practical point of view, when you're prescribing these, presumably you have got some patients on high doses, do you flag it in any way on your clinical system?
1: We don't, actually. I mean, obviously, all we, we like to believe that all the... The treatments that we offer on our repeats are linked to a condition so we make that's one of our quality markers so that every patient who's on high doses of antihistamines it'll be linked to their chronic urticaria and they will all get a review at least once a year for that and that's how we do it really but obviously these days you can you know the search facilities are fantastic so you're able to search for drug or for or for disease
0: good thank you very much Uh, to read these in any of our articles please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com and for any comments or feedback, please email us at dtbbmj.com. At Thank you very much.